We all there? John chapter 3? We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 15 today. Um, if you don't have your Bibles, no worries. It'll be on the screen there. You can follow along. Let me read this for us. We've got a lot to do, so I'm just going to jump right in. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. we got some work to do today. There's a lot there, right? Um, I was telling, uh, who was I telling? Maybe my folks. My folks are here, by the way, in the back there, John and Kay Patterson. Um, uh, yeah, um, normally on a, on a, uh, a typical uh, week in, in preparing for a message, I take about eight or nine pages of notes, um, reading commentaries, personal you know, analysis of the text. I write a lot of thoughts down, uh, listening to different sermons and so on, right? Eight or nine pages. I took 18 this, this week. Don't worry. Uh, <laughs> Oh, well, you'll be home by 3.30 when the game starts. <laughs> no, but, but seriously, there, there is just a, a, a ton of stuff here. And so um, this was a really, Jesus says some difficult things to understand, even for Nicodemus. If it's hard for Nicodemus, it's going to be a little difficult for us. Um, and so can we just, can we take a minute before we dive in and unpack this, can we just take a minute and ask for the mercy of God as we, uh, as we try to uh, come to his scriptures and hear what he has to say. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We know, Lord, that this was not just a conversation meant for the two of, for, for Jesus and, and Nicodemus, Lord, but it was uh, also meant for our um, benefit. We needed to hear it, and we needed to read it, and we needed to wrestle through it, and ponder it, and meditate on it, and let the truths of your words penetrate us. And so, God, I pray that you would do that. I pray for the Spirit that you would be present and active in the hearts uh, of your church today. You would help me to be able to speak truth and only truth. If there's anything that is not true, I pray, God, that you would um, silence me, or may everybody zone out at the right time. Um, Lord, I just pray that you would help us to uh, see you for who you are. God, again, our first and foremost desire to this morning is that you are exalted. If nothing else happens but that, that's that's a good morning, God. May we exalt your name today. Um, Use your word to grow us into you, uh, to open our eyes, illuminate our hearts, help us to love you and serve you more because of uh, our study this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right. All right, so let's, let's back up and let's, let's try to unpack this. So John, the writer of this gospel, uh, introduces us to a man named Nicodemus. In uh, verse 1, he, he tells us a few things about Nicodemus. We know a few things about this guy. One, we're told that Nicodemus is a ruler of the Jews. Okay, What in the world does that mean? It means that he's a part of the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was a group of 70 men 
that was, they were like the, 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 the supreme court. Okay, they were the rulers. So they were supreme court for all of the Jews, not just in Jerusalem, not just the surrounding areas, but they, were, they had ruling jurisdiction over every Jew in the world. Okay, this guy came, you know, Nicodemus came wielding some legitimate political power. Okay, uh, we're also told later in the gospel, Nicodemus has a lot of money. He makes a pretty substantial purchase. We'll talk about that in the weeks to come, but he makes a pretty substantial purchase at the end of the gospels. And, and so we know that has some money to his name. Okay, so he's got political power. He's got wealth. Uh, we're told something else here in, in the beginning of John 3. We're told that he's a Pharisee, and that means, again, he is a member of the religious elite. If you're not familiar with the Pharisees, there were never more than 6,000 Pharisees at a time. Again, these were the religious elite of the Jews. Never more than uh, 6,000 of them at a time. And these 6,000 Jewish men made a covenant in front of others, made a covenant in the presence of witnesses, uh, that they were going to dedicate their life to, to obeying the Ten Commandments to the letter. And this is something they took very very seriously. Let me give you a little glimpse of just how passionately committed they were to obeying God's law. Okay, um, The Ten Commandments, if you, if you begin to look at them, what you're going to find is that the Ten Commandments can at times be a little vague or a little nebulous, right? Sometimes it's really hard to get down to, okay, what exactly am I supposed to do here? For example, take uh, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. What in the world does that mean? Right? That's what they asked. Well, okay. My, you know, in the Pharisees' mind, everything, their salvation, their acceptance with God, um, everything you know, rises and falls on whether or not they were able to obey that commandment. So what in the world does it mean to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy? And so what they did was there was a group of men that called the scribes, and the scribes dedicated their lives to taking these commandments and then writing out all the different regulations and traditions of what it was going to look like practically to obey those commands. Okay? So what they did was they actually put together a massive volume called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah, again, just did that. It just broke out the regulations. And so for that specific commandment, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy, there were 24 entire chapters detailing what that meant. Okay? Let me give you an example of, of just the craziness. Um, so for, for, the, uh, Pharise- for the Pharisee, it was illegal to make mortar for bricks for their building, right? Because the Sabbath day was a day of rest, so it was illegal to make mortar. But then the Pharisees thought, well, what if a lot of saliva builds up in my mouth and I need to spit out onto the ground? Because then with my saliva and that dirt, are they going to mix together and they're going to make mud and that's our mortar? Therefore, if I spit on the Sabbath, is that breaking the law? And so there, there became a rule. The scribes wrote down in the Mishnah that there was a rule that the, that you could not, on the Sabbath day, spit on the dirt. If you had a lot of saliva build up in your mouth, you had to run and find a rock somewhere, and you could spit on the rock. It was legal to spit on a rock. You couldn't spit on the dirt. Okay? In Jeremiah, we're told that you're, you're, not, you're not to bear a burden on the Sabbath. You don't bear a burden on the Sabbath. And so they, the Pharisees, of course, said, well, what does that mean? How do you define a burden? And so in the Mishnah, the, the scribes defined it as, actually, I'll read it to you. The scribes defined it as uh, a burden is food... Equal in weight to a dried fig, milk enough for one swallow, or honey enough to put on a wound. So anything beyond that weight was now qualified as a burden. So anything, you know, if you hold anything more than a, a gulp of milk, anything heavier than a gulp of milk, it would be considered breaking the law. And so there's all kinds of questions that had to be asked. What if we, you know, what if somebody has a wooden leg? Does that count as bearing a burden? What if somebody has to, you know, can you carry a chair? Can you pick up a child? 
This was a question that was debated. Is, does picking up a child count as bearing a burden on the Sabbath? And some of you would say yes, by the way, right? No, no, but, but that's, these are the questions they debated. This is how ridiculous and crazy these things got. These, these scribes dedicated their lives to working out all of these extra-biblical traditions and regulations. Um, and then these Pharisees, these 6,000 men, including Nicodemus, took a blood oath covenant in the presence of other witnesses saying, we are going to follow this to the T. Okay? So I'll, you, I'll, the reason I tell you this is because I want you to see who's in the middle of this conversation. It's Jesus and this guy. So, so Nicodemus shows up with, with political power, with position, with wealth, and with this over-the-top moral <laughs> conviction and discipline that we have no, we have no context for. You know, like, what do you do with it? We don't even have an understanding of how committed he was to, to memorizing and studying and, and obeying the law. Um, so we have to ask the question, if he was all this, okay, why in the world did he go to Jesus that night? in the way that he did. Why did he go to Jesus that night? And I think it was because he, he knew that there was still something missing. Despite all that he had, despite all that he had achieved, despite all that he was striving for, he knew that he was still not right with God. There was still something missing. And so he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, we know you're from God. We know you're, you're a, a, a God-given teacher. Teach me. Teach me. Um, and again, for the, for the Pharisees, teaching is everything. They thought if we can just hear enough teaching and we can just obey to the right degree, then, then I can put God in my debt. Then God will have to give me a reward. If I just work hard enough, then he's got to give me my paycheck. He's got to let me into the kingdom. So I think uh, Nicodemus, Nicodemus came to Jesus that night looking for more teaching. He says this. He says, Rabbi, and again, what does Rabbi mean? Teacher. Teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, if you look at those two statements, Nicodemus' statement, Jesus' statement, it seems as if Jesus kind of interrupts Nicodemus' line of thought and goes in a completely different direction. Don't those, don't those two statements seem a little bit unrelated? Nicodemus is like, you are a great teacher from God. Uh, and Jesus says, you've got to be born again to see the kingdom. I think what, what's happening here is Jesus is interrupting Nicodemus because he's, he's, he's trying to shake and rattle Nicodemus' perspective of who Jesus is and what he has come to bring, what he has come to do. Nicodemus thinks that Jesus has come primarily as a teacher. And I have to think there's, there's probably some people in here who think the same thing. Um, you might think that Christianity means simply reading the Sermon on the Mount over and over and trying your best to live up to the teaching that you find there. That's what it means to be a Christian. But what Jesus is telling Nicodemus here, I believe, is no, Nicodemus, you're missing it. I haven't just come to bring you more teaching. I haven't just come to bring you uh, reformation. I've come to bring you transformation. If you treat me as a teacher who tells you how to save yourself rather than seeing me as the Savior who has come to do what you can never do, you are never going to see the kingdom of God. If you don't hear anything else I say today, please hear that. If you come to Jesus as a teacher who is going to teach you how you can save yourself rather than as a Savior who has come to do what you could never do, uh, you will never, ever, ever see the kingdom of God. You will never enter the kingdom of God. That's an offensive statement. I understand that. But that's, the real, that's what Jesus said. The Pharisees thought that salvation, life, 
uh, could be found in the study and the memorization and the obedience to a bunch of scriptural teaching, but they missed that the scriptures were all pointing to Jesus. One of the saddest, one of the saddest statements in all the Bible, you read it in John 5, Jesus tells the Pharisees, Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and, but it's, it's, it's they that bear witness about me, and yet you refuse to come to me that you might have eternal life. You just, you, you, in that story in John 5, you just hear the heartbreak in Jesus. He's saying that you, you go to these scriptures and, and you think that in them you have life. But it, they're the ones talking about me and you're missing it. You refuse to come to me that you might have life. Norman Geisler is a theologian. He, he points out that every, every scripture, uh, every section of scripture is, is meant to open our eyes, illuminate our eyes to, be, to, to the reality and to, to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He says this. He, he kind of breaks down the different genres that we find in the 66 books of the Bible. He says, in the law, we find the foundation for Christ. In history, we find the preparation for Christ. In poetry, we find the aspiration for Christ. In the prophets, we find the expectation of Christ. In the gospels, we find the manifestation of Christ. In Acts, we find the propagation of Christ. In the epistles, we find the interpretation of Christ. And in Revelation, we find the consummation in Christ. Jesus is interrupting Nicodemus and saying, I have not come to give you more scripture. I have come as the fulfillment of the scriptures. I've not come to bring you more scriptures. I've come to fulfill the scriptures. I haven't come to bring moral reformation. I have come to bring radical transformation. And I use that term very intentionally. He's come to bring radical transformation. Do you know the word radical comes from the word radix? It means root. Root. I have come to give you a new root. If you want to see the kingdom of God, you've got to have a new root. The word birth, talking about new, the new birth, being born again, the word birth actually means seed. Peter says, he says the perishable seed needs to be replaced by the imperishable seed. You need a new seed. You need new roots. I've heard it said like this. Imagine you have a, you have a peach orchard, right? You own a big peach orchard. And one day you decide, you know, I'm going to go into the applesauce business. Okay? Uh, and... You think, how am I going to get apples from my peach orchard? So you think and you think and you think, finally, I got it. I need to prune the trees. I got to prune the trees. I got to do more watering. I got to try harder. I got to cut them back. I have to. Um, you, what's going to happen? You're going to get more peaches. That's right. You're going to get, you probably get some more fruit, right? But it's still going to be peaches. If you want to get apples, you have to uproot the old roots and you have to put in new roots. It's, it's so obvious. But don't you see how often we do the very same things? Oftentimes, you know, we get this sense that we need God. Maybe a tragedy strikes. Maybe there's some sin that creeps up in our life and just begins to disintegrate and destroy relationships and things around us. And we just think, man, I, I, got, I need help. I need God. Our go-to response often is this. I guess I should get some religion. I guess I, guess I need to adopt some moral disciplines. I've got to stop cussing so much. Right? That'll do it. I've got I to I start reading the Bible more. I've got to start going to church more. Do you understand what you're doing? You're just pruning your life back. You're, you're, you're cutting the trees back. You're pruning your life. But Jesus is saying that's not enough. If you want to experience, if you want the fruit that you're looking for, you need an entirely new root. 
Your old roots need to be pulled out, new roots need to be planted. The new birth is an action of God in which his Holy Spirit is implanted into the base of your heart. And then that imperishable seed begins to germinate and it produces new blossoms and new flowers and new fruit. Now, let me clarify. I said Christianity is not just about reformation, right? It's about transformation. That does not mean that a person who is born again is not going to reform. It doesn't mean that somebody who's born again isn't going to drop certain habits or start reading their Bible or start going to church. What I'm saying is that those are the actions, not the essence. Remember we say that's the fruit, not the root. That's fruit, not root. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, uprooted. The old is gone and the new has come. So we've talked about the necessity of the new birth. Now let's talk about the nature of the new birth. What is the new birth. What does it mean to be born again? Let me mention three words here to you that, that, that Jesus uses. He says, he talks about the water, he talks about spirit, and he talks about wind. Water, spirit, wind. Um, and we need to take a look at all three. Let's look at the first two together, though, because that's how Jesus does it. He talks about being born of the water and the spirit. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Um, now, I think By the way, I love when Jesus uses pictures like this because oftentimes when he uses pictures, he's not just communicating one spiritual reality. Oftentimes there's multiple spiritual realities, all kinds of layers. You just pull it back and, oh, it's this and it's this and it's this. I think there are multiple realities being conveyed here. I'm going to point out two. Um, First, I think when, when Jesus says you have to be born of water and of the Spirit, I think Jesus is saying you have to be born twice. Okay? I think the water relates to the physical, the spirit relates to the spiritual. When Jessica was pregnant with our firstborn, Israel, about a week before our due date, five and a half years ago, about a week before our due date, something happened, and Jessica knew that we had to go to the hospital, and that time was of the essence. What was that? What happened? Her water broke, right? Her water broke. I think on some level, uh, what Jesus is saying is that... uh, um, that being born of water is referring to the physical birth. Jesus says it's not enough to enter into... Uh, it's being born, the, the, the physical birth, being flesh giving birth to flesh, it's not enough to be able to enter into the kingdom of God. You also have to be born of the Spirit. It, Jesus says right after this, flesh can give birth to flesh, but Spirit has to give birth to Spirit. You are not saved. This is, this is what I think the reality that we have to remember. This is where it gets practical. You are not saved because you were born into a Christian home. We know that, I think, Right? You were not you, know, you were not born because, or you were not saved because you were born in America. You were not born or saved because you were born in, uh, to Christian parents. Becoming a Christian is not a matter of genetics. Again, I think most of us get that. The problem is, oftentimes we don't live like that. I do think that. There, there, there is a, there's potentially somebody here who still might identify themselves with Jesus through the faith of their parents or their grandparents. My parents, I told you, are in the back. My parents are uh, great, is a great Christian man and woman. I was born into a great Christian home. I'm very grateful for the, the, the childhood and, uh, that I have and the relationship I have with them now. They're great examples of what it means to know and to love and to follow Jesus. But I wasn't born grandfathered into Christianity. Um, at, at a certain point in time, I had to make a personal decision to, to, to give my life to Jesus and, and was born again. That, that was a personal decision. I heard somebody say recently that you enter into heaven in a single file line, right? Nobody made that decision for me. 
You're not a Christian because your parents are, because your grandpa was a pastor, or because you go to church regularly, hang around a lot of Christians. It's a personal decision. And let me say one more thing on that. To you parents and to you future parents, um, may I remind you that your children do not have a relationship with God just because you do. Okay? Um, Again, I think we know this in the back of our heads, but oftentimes the way that we live communicates that what we really think is that one day our faith is just automatically going to transfer to them. Magically. And that's not how it works. Um, I, I have three, again, I have three beautiful children. I love and enjoy more than I have time to tell you guys today, but I realize, and it breaks my heart, but I realize that at a certain age, at a certain point in time, God is gonna, going to begin to hold my children accountable for their sin. At a certain age, God is going to hold my children accountable. Um, and should my children choose at that point not to place their faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, I do think that God is going to honor that decision. And they will remain spiritually dead and separated from him. That's not something I like to think about or talk about, but it's a, it's a, if the Bible's true, it's a reality. And if that's the reality, you better believe that I'm going to be just as intentional and deliberate as with the way I invest in my, in my children's physical health and their mental health, their psychological health, their emotional health, as I am their, their spiritual health and growth, right? God help us. God help us if we're, if we're primarily, if we're only concerned about our kids' physical health and about them becoming some academic superstar and baseball superstar or whatever, and, and we don't pour or invest anything in their spiritual life. God help us if that's the case. I'm not saying that we can manufacture spiritual birth. I'm not saying that we can manufacture spiritual growth in our kids. I can't do that. You can't do that. We don't have the power to do that. We can't, we can't grow our kids spiritually, but what we can do is we can plant the seeds, and we can till the soil, and we can water it, right? And maybe God in his mercy, maybe God in his mercy will choose to grow it. Um, so parents, how are, you, how are you doing with that? Let me just offer another encouragement. Um, even as I was looking through this, I was, I, was, I was challenged with this as well. Pray for your kids every day. Pray for them. Pray with them. Teach your kids Teach your kids that we don't simply engage and relate with God on Sunday mornings at church and before we eat meals. Set an example for them of what it means to know and to enjoy and to follow Jesus. Open your mouth and have conversation with them. On the drive home today after, after church today, ask them what they learned about Ask them questions. Encourage them to ask questions. Help them wrestle through it. Read with them. One of the greatest resources that Jessica and I have enjoyed over the last couple of years, actually the, the Blackmans introduced us to it, was the Jesus Storybook Bible. We talk about it a lot here. It's a tremendous resource. It was written as a paraphrase of many of the, of the Bible stories, and it, and it was written in such a way that it, it, it keeps the profound spiritual truth of the, of the stories, yet at the same time is understandable by a five-year-old. Our five-year-old gets it. And I cannot tell you how many sweet uh, conversations it has opened up to be able to help my son understand who Jesus is and what he's done. Op- open, these, open the And again, I love it. It just continually points the kids back to Jesus. My, ki- my kid is falling in love with Jesus through, through, through his word. Um, in fact, if, if you don't have a copy of that and you'd want that as a resource, we've got copies here. We actually bought a bunch of extra copies because we like to hand them out. We think they're such great resources for the family. So if you don't have one, I'll give one to you today. It'll be our gift to you. We, I told you just a few weeks ago, the Great Commission starts at home. It's got to start at home. Go home, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to obey. That's our commission.
I think when Jesus says that you have to be born of the water and of the Spirit, I think that he's saying that you are saved not because of the family or the country or the time period that you were born in, because flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to spirit. You need a spiritual rebirth. You need a second birth. I think Jesus is communicating something else as well. In the Old Testament, we're going to find, you read all kinds of promises and prophecies about this new covenant that we're going to enjoy in Jesus. Um, And oftentimes, in those promises and prophecies, you're going to see water and spirit talked about in tandem, okay? So I think actually in this particular case in John 3, that Jesus is referring to a prophecy uh, and actually kind of summing up the prophecy that we read in Ezekiel 36. I want to read it to you. Listen close to this. Again, think water and spirit. He says, uh, God says to the, through the prophet, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. Hear that? I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. Spirit. I will put a new, new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. So you see what God is saying through the prophet Ezekiel. He's saying, one day I'm going to sprinkle water on you, clean water on you, and you will be cleansed from your sin, cleansed from your idols, and then I will put my spirit within you, and I will give you the power and the desire to live for me and to love me. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you need forgiveness and cleansing from your sin. You need forgiveness and cleansing, and I've come to bring that. But look, this is where we, this is where we often get it confused, because it doesn't stop there. This is not, it, it, it's a means to an end. He's saying, I'm going to remove all of this sin and this junk in your heart so that I can make room for my spirit to come and live with you and I will remake you and renew you and I will give you, uh, I will take that heart of stone away and I'll give you a heart of flesh and I'll give you a new way of thinking, a new economy, a new value system, a new way to dream, a new way to plan, a new way to prioritize, a new way of seeing the world. To be born again means that you are forgiven of your sins, but it also means that God implants his spirit deep in your heart at its very roots so that new desires and new motivation, new power, new life are planted. That's the thing. Is we, we, we always think that it, it's just about forgiveness of sins, and it is, absolutely is, and it has to start with that. But it goes deeper than that. It goes far. That's a means to an, a means to an end. Is that because his spirit is going to come live with us, and it's going to shape us and remake us, and that's when we begin to live for him and love him. Um. He didn't just come so that you stop feeling guilty, right? The Bible says that the same, I don't have it written down, the spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead now lives in you. If you're born again, the spirit, the same power, the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead now lives in you. You walk out of this door, if you were born and you walk out of the door with that kind of life and power, he comes to bring it to, that we might experience the cleansing water, but he also came that we might receive the life-giving, power-infusing Holy Spirit. So we said that's the water and spirit. Let's talk about the wind. What about the wind? Why in the world would Jesus liken the new birth to wind? He says in verse 8, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Um, a lot of scholars actually think that the way when you kind of break down the conversation and you look at when he says and where he says, and a lot of scholars like to think that there might have actually been a storm raging outside of the house that Jesus and, and Nicodemus were talking in that night. By the way, a lot of scholars think that they were actually talking in John's house. Um, 
but it, it would be like if, if, you know, they're having this conversation and all of a sudden you kind of just hear this howling wind and Jesus stops and listens and he says, uh, Nicodemus, the new birth, it, it's like that wind out there. It's like that wind. You can't see it. Can't see it. You can't create it. It blows where it's want. It blows where it wants, when it wants. You, yeah, you hear it sound. You see what it has the ability to do, but you cannot control it. That's what it's like to be born of the Spirit. And by the way, you've got to love Nicodemus as a stand-in for us here because you know, he's so honest. He's like, wait, what? <laughs> what are you talking? What in the world does that mean? How can that be is what he says. I think this is what Jesus meant. By comparing the second birth to the wind, he's saying that the new birth is not of the visible, but it's of the invisible world. It's not of the natural, it's of the supernatural This is not something that you have power over. It's not something you can control. It's not something that you can manipulate. It's like this. I know I'm mixing metaphors here, but so does Jesus. And so I got to bounce around. So bear with the mixing of the metaphors here. But it's, it's, it's like the physical birth. Again, my mom's here. She can vouch for me on this one. I didn't talk my parents into giving birth to me. Right? No child ever decided to get born. Um... Nobody ever said, I think I'm going to go out and get born today. Okay? Birth happens to you, not because of you. Birth happens to you, not because of you. I didn't struggle and fight to bring about my birth, right? Who did? My mom, right? I didn't struggle and fight to bring about my birth. My mom did. The baby is brought into this world through the mother's labor. The baby is brought into the world through the mother's pain. Somebody else suffers. Somebody else is in labor. Somebody else is in anguish. Somebody else is bleeding. That's the new birth. Do you understand? You don't manufacture it. You don't labor over it. You don't anguish over it. You don't, ble- you don't bleed for it. Somebody else did for you. That's the new birth. You don't manipulate it. It happens to you, not because of you. Timothy Keller preached a great sermon on this. This is what he said in his sermon. I want to read you just a little section. He said, Only with the direct intervention of God's supernatural power from another realm can you experience new birth. You aren't capable of it, and yet the glory of God's grace comes down and confronts our moral and spiritual impossibility. You cannot do it, and yet God can. God can come into your life, and he can renew you. Now, whenever people get around Jesus and hear him talk like that, an odd thing happens. It divides people. Why do you think the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the people who are the outcasts of society were the ones to follow Jesus and love Jesus? The people who were self-righteous, who felt powerful, who were proud, who felt they had control, the people who felt they had the ability and the power to run their lives, when they heard what Jesus was saying, they got upset, they they got offended. But the outcasts, the people who felt they were flawed, who saw their mistakes and saw their weaknesses, they began to get hope. Whenever anybody listened to Jesus talking about the new birth, some people got offended and some people got hope. Which are you? The the, the teaching of the new birth that Jesus gives here, it leaves no room for pride or for despair. No room for pride or for despair. If you were sitting here today, you walked in here, and you're like, man, I wish this guy would hurry up. Um, I I get it, but you know what? I'm a... I'm a good person. God's going to accept me. And I'm not buying all of this. I'm a good person. I'm a lot better than a lot of people I know. I'm a good person. God's going to see that. He'll accept me the way I am. Um, you don't hold a candle to Nicodemus. You don't even come close to who Nicodemus was and what he accomplished. 
And, and Jesus looked at Nicodemus and said, nope. All, all that you have accomplished, all that you are, um, they are filthy rags compared to the righteous requirements of a holy God. And if you think any different, I'm sorry, this is offensive. If you think any different, then you have too low a view of the holiness of God. And you have too high a view of yourself, frankly. Jesus tells him, you have to start over. Everything that you've worked for, you've got to start over. You need a complete spiritual overhaul. The teaching of the new birth destroys self-righteousness, destroys self-dependence. It humbles you into the ground. And yet, on the flip side, perhaps you're hearing, you're, you're hearing me talk about entering the kingdom and being born as a child of God, and we just sang about it a lot. We're going to sing about it some more. And you think in your heart of hearts, maybe for everybody else, but not for me, because you don't know what I've done. You don't know my past. You don't know my record. You don't know... Uh, the, the, the wake of destruction I have left behind. You don't know the secret life I'm leading today. I can't be accepted. I can't see the kingdom of God. You're not listening. You're not listening. Hear what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you're, you're, not, you're not behind. You are not farther away from God than the most disciplined and accomplished person, the most squeaky clean person that you're going to want to meet. You're not farther away. You're no closer, but you're also no farther away. When it comes to God, when it comes to the new birth, it's not about what we have done or what we haven't done. It's about what he does. Everybody, everybody on the planet starts from scratch. Everybody starts over. Everything is thrown at the window. It's a complete spiritual overhaul, and it's all about what Jesus has done. To find cleansing and new life is a work not of the visible. It's of the invisible world. It's not something that you can conjure up. It's a work of the supernatural. There's one more truth here when we talk about the wind that I'm just going to mention real briefly. I want you to see the verbiage that Jesus uses here. He's talking about water. He's talking about wind. You see the vis- visual image that he is creating. He's painting this picture. If you, if you look at it, he's painting the picture of a hurricane, a big, massive windstorm, a wild, messy, powerful storm. Jess and I have actually been through a hurricane. We used to live in South Florida. About a year after we moved there, uh, w- there was a hurricane that came through. And we I remember we sat huddled up in our apartment, and we weathered the storm, and we were kind of excited, because right, this is the first time experiencing it. And so we would go out, and we'd, every once in a while we'd look out the window, and we'd see, you know, because we wanted to see what our hurricane looks like. Guess what? You can't see the wind. But we saw, we saw a whole lot of evidence of the wind. After the hurricane was done, we walked out of our, down our stairs and into the little parking lot there. Um, we, had not seen one, we had not seen the wind, but we saw a whole lot of evidence. We saw there was this massive palm tree that had been uprooted and was laying down just flat, okay, that had to get removed. There was a, uh, you know, branches that had fallen off and fallen on cars. There was stuff everywhere, okay? We didn't see the wind, but there's a whole lot of evidence of the wind. What if I were to have come up here when I first started the message today and I were to have told you guys, man, it's really windy in this room today. Would never be like, what is this guy talking about? Right? This guy's crazy. There's no wind in here. And I were to have said, well, how do you know? The wind is invisible. You would have said, Philip, my hair would be blowing. Your papers would be flying everywhere. There would be evidence. Music stands would be flying around. If there were gusts of wind in this room, we would see evidence of the gusts of the wind. So with that in mind, right, we agree there? We agree? Okay. If that's the case, think about what Jesus is saying here. If the Spirit of God is regenerating your soul, there will be visible evidence. The wind will be blowing in your life. If the new birth is like wind, there will be evidence of the wind. Some of you in here have been going to church and calling yourself a Christian for years, but if you're really honest, 
And I know why we're at church. Why would I be honest? If you're really honest, there is, there is no evidence of God's hurricane force wind in your life. Is it possible, listen, is it possible that the omnipotent power and presence of God could be in your life, could be in your soul, and not blow some things around? Again, we say this all the time, that the definition of a Christian, the biblical definition of a Christian is someone in whom God has made his dwelling. And if God has made his dwelling, there will be some things shaken up. There will be some things blown around, rattled around. There will be some things transformed. The question we have to ask is this. How do I know if I truly have the Spirit of God living in me? So has anything been blown around? Has anything been moved or uprooted, transformed, demolished, destroyed? Has anything been built up in its place? Let's get real bottom line. Again, I'm mixing metaphors here. How do I know if the perishable seed has been uprooted and the imperishable seed has been planted? It's very simple. What are the signs of life? How do you know if something is alive? Anybody? There's growth, right? If it's alive, it's going to grow. My five-year-old is about 45 pounds, three foot something, nine, ten, something like that. Okay? That's fine. He's five and a half years old. If he's 15... And he's 45 pounds still, and about 3 foot 9 or 10. You better believe that we're like, what is wrong with our child? We're going to have him into the doctor. We're going to be taken in the specialist to figure out what is going on. If there's not growth, you, there's evidence of something that's not right. Are you growing? That's, that's the sign of life. That's a sign of you've been born again. If you've been born again, a new life has been implanted in you. The omnipotent power and the presence of God, there will be growth. Now, be careful here. And this just really hit me this week. On Thursday, we, I heard John Ortberg speak, and, 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 and he mentioned something. He said, you know, oftentimes when people ask me, uh, you know, accountability people and people in a small group, hey, how's your spiritual life? Are you growing? Are you maturing? Oftentimes his go-to thought is, he analyzes, he thinks, how's my quiet time been lately? Have I been reading my Bible uh, have I been journaling? And he automatically goes to the spiritual disciplines. Okay? So he's like, well, yes, I used to read 15 minutes, now I'm reading 20 minutes a day. Therefore, I'm spiritually maturing. I'm growing spiritually. But he pointed out that that's not, Bible reading is not, it's not, Bible reading, that's a means to an end. That's so that you can grow. That, doesn't, that isn't growth. That's so that you can grow. What are the fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You want to know if you're growing spiritually? Again, reading your Bible, that's great. But that's training for godliness. Reading, your, reading the Bible is not godliness. That's training for godliness. You want to know if you're growing? Are you growing as a loving person? Are you growing in patience? Are you, are you experiencing more peace today than you were a year ago? That's how you know if you've grown. You follow me? Are, are, you, are you becoming more honest? Are you becoming more faithful? Are you becoming more good? Are you becoming more quick to repent of your sins? That's how you know if you're growing. It's the fruits of the Spirit. You get new roots. The fruit of the Holy Spirit begins to grow, and you become a brand new, radically transformed person. Uh, the old has gone. The new has come. There's an old story about um, Augustine that illustrates this so well. I love this. I've heard this a few times from different uh, preachers, but um, before... Before Augustine was converted, Augustine was a philosopher. Before he was converted to Christianity, we're told that he has. I'm looking to see if there are any little ears in here. I'll say it like this: He had he had a very uh, passionate life. Okay, he led a very passionate life with many different people. 
all right? Um, pre-conversion. And then he, then he uh, finds Christ. I mean, uh, he experienced uh, this, this new birth. He's born again, and he's radically transformed into a new person. So years later, after his conversion, he goes back into this town that he hadn't been to in years, even before he was a Christian. And as he's walking through the town, he comes across a woman who recognizes him from his days where he, that he had had a pretty scandalous relationship with her. Okay? You follow me? And, uh, and he comes across her, and she comes running up, very excited to see him, all excited, kind of flirty with him, kind of like you know, back in the day. And there's just something, you know, Augustine's kind, he's polite, he's warm, but he, uh, there's something different about him. Uh, there's just something she can't really put her finger on. There's just, she's trying to figure out what, what, what's going on here. So, you know, they exchange a few words, and then he says goodbye, and he goes on his way. And she's kind of left bewildered, and then she thinks, oh, he didn't recognize me. It's been years. He thought of somebody else. And so she calls out to him, and she says, Augustine, it's me. It's me. And then he turns around and he looks at her and he said, I know, but it's not me. It's not me. You see, that's not schizophrenia. Augustine was a different person. So can you say that? Think about who you were before Jesus. I mean, just just said this like two weeks ago about some stuff, even after we were believers, but just you know, the Holy Spirit just continues to transform. She said, man, five, six years ago, we just, this feels like a different people altogether. It's like you're looking at somebody completely different outside of your body looking into someone else. It's not me. To be born again is to experience God's hurricane force, power, and presence in your life that radically uproots and transforms you. So let's ask one more question now as we close. How do we receive the new birth? How do we receive it? Jesus tells us here in verse 14, he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Nicodemus knows this story well. Again, he probably had much of the Old Testament memorized. We probably have this, actually I know, the Pharisees had the Torah memorized. You had to to have that before you got in. So he had this story memorized. He knows the story well. In Numbers 21, uh, there is a story that we read in which the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, uh, the rebellious nation of Israel, uh, get um, attacked by snakes. It's a weird story. But they get, they get attacked by a bunch of venomous, poisonous snakes as judgment for their sin. God's judgment for their sin. And the, the nation of Israel is essentially just laying sprawled out on the ground, dying full of venom, convulsing, high fevers. It looks like the nation of Israel is going to get wiped out. And then God looks down on his people and he has mercy on them. And he tells Moses, he says, Moses, go make a serpent, a snake, out of bronze, put it on a pole, lift up the pole high up so that the people, so that any who would look on it would be healed. Anybody who looks at the snake on the pole will be healed. Um, if you've heard that story before, maybe you're like me, I've always wondered, why in the world would God have Moses make a snake and put it on the pole? Out of anything that he could, he said, put a cherubim, put, you know, the, the law, you know, picture of the law, anything. Why a snake? Why a serpent? Why would, he, would God tell him, put the very thing that is now bringing them death and judgment, and now it's going to bring them life? Now it's going to bring them healing. Jesus is saying, that story, that story is about me. That story is about me. You want to have life, look at me. I am going to be lifted up. 
And what you're going to see as you look at me high and lifted up, you're going to see your judgment placed on me. The very thing that should destroy you is going to instead destroy me. I am going to take that judgment upon myself. I'll take the venom into my body. I will take the poison into my body. I will be lifted up. I will die in your place. And through my death, you will have life. The scriptures say that as we're we're looking at Jesus, we're looking at our sin on him. He who knew no sin became sin for us. It's our sin that's hanging on that cross. It's God's judgment pouring out. That was our judgment. But now as we look at that cross... That doesn't, that doesn't spell death for us anymore. That spells life. 1 Peter 1 says, In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade. We receive the new birth through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, and if I haven't drilled this into your head enough today, I'm going to read you just one more scripture as we close. Just one more. This lit me up this week. I ju- it, just, it just clicked this week. Um, I want to read this, this, this passage of scripture about the new birth will tell us the motivation and the heart behind what, behind what God has done, uh, to, what God did to make the new birth possible. Towards the end of Jesus' life, in John chapter 19, we're told that Jesus gathers his disciples together and he tells them about his coming death. And he tells them about the life that is going to result from his death. And then he, in the way that he does it, he compares himself to a woman in labor who's about to give birth to a new child. This is what he says, John 19. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. Remember, two weeks ago we said this. When he talks about his hour, what's he talking about? He's talking about his death, right? When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Do you, see what, do you see what he's saying? Jesus is saying, I'm the mother. I, I'm, I'm the mother. It, it was his labor. It was his anguish that brought us into the kingdom. He's saying, I am going to die in labor, delivering my child. But I love you so much that even as I die, just watching you be born, will, it'll all be worth it. How amazing is that? He died in labor, giving birth to us. Hebrews says that he endured the cross for the joy set before him. What is the joy set before him? Us. He endured it for the joy. He, he, He counted it joy to be able to die for us, to endure what he did. The physical pain, the emotional pain, even the spiritual forsaking of the Father. It was worth it to him to bring us back. You never, ever, ever have to question whether or not God loves you. He died giving birth to you, and he found it. When he saw you be born, he found it joy. He forgot all the anguish. Just to prove my point that that's where he's going with it, you know the very next thing he says to Nicodemus? You know, after talking about Moses lifting up the snake and whoever believes in him have eternal life, he said, Because for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. We're going to talk about that next week. Those are the very next verses. It's all part of the conversation with Nicodemus. God loves you. He loves you. You are not beyond his reach. He spilled his blood to cleanse you. 
And he did it that he might place his spirit inside of you and transform you into the person that you were created to be. Listen to me, everybody. I don't care if you've been here for 10 years and you're, and you're being honest. You're saying, you know, frankly, I, 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 come to, I, I have great attendance. I wear Christian t-shirts. Sometimes I, I, I like to shop at C28. I listen to K-Love. But, it, but if, if, if you have never experienced a hurricane force, power and presence of God in your life, shaking you, blowing, transforming, if you've never made the decision to say yes to Jesus, remember he says believe, believe in Jesus. And that's just not a cognitive belief. That's not just an intellectual belief. It's placing your faith, placing your weight, saying yes, everything, all that I am, all that I have, I honor you. I give it to you. If you never covenanted yourself to God and have him covenant back to you, today's the day. Maybe today is the day. Jesus is here with the power and the desire and the means. Miriam read about it 2,000 years ago. The means were acquired. He, came with, he comes with the power and the desire and the means that you might be born again today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, for this, uh, the, the record of this conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus and passing it down to us that we might look into it today. And see more clearly who you are, um, what you've done for us, and your desire to be reconciled to us. God, I pray, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would be in this room today and that you would be drawing all men, women, and children unto yourself. God, if there is anybody who is outside of the kingdom, who has yet to see or enter the kingdom, as you were talking about in that verse, Lord, that they would be born again today. I pray that even in their heart of hearts right now, at this moment, Lord, that they would say, Yes, Jesus. I believe. I, I, I know that you went to the cross because you love me and you took the punishment for my sin that I might be made clean and find forgiveness. And you want to place your spirit in my heart and, and I receive that. And I, I, want, to, I want you to, to take over. Be my king. I will be yours. God, if there's somebody in this room, I pray that they would, they would, they would say that prayer. And they would mean it with their hearts. They would live for you from this day forward, being transformed by the presence of your spirit in their life. And God, I pray for every person, those of us who are, are, who are in the kingdom, who are, who are walking with Jesus, I pray that as we open up these words and we hear these, these same gospel truths again and again and again, that it would just can still just blossom this fruit as we understand how much you love us. Help that, help that to result in us loving you and living for you all that much more. Father, we love you. We thank you for who you are, what you've done. We worship you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.